talk about religion as a, as a group. And so they knew, the teacher knew that some amongst the students, there was various religions represented. And so she said, you know, next day, tomorrow, when we talk about world religions, everybody bring in uh, your, something that represents your religion. So there was a little Jewish boy, and he brought in a little dreidel, and he got to teach about the history of that. And there was a, a Muslim brought in a prayer mat and got to teach the class and show and tell about their prayer mat. A Catholic girl brought in a, a rosary, and the Baptist kid didn't know what to, didn't know what to bring in. So talked to your mom, mom and said, Mom, what is it that makes us special about, about Baptists? And so they talked a bit about it as a family, and then the next day the, the, little, the little kid brought in a casserole and said, this is, what, this is what represents us. I can tell that story because I am a Baptist myself. I'm John the Baptist. Or, one of, and after, after the very first recorded Baptist, John the Baptist, um, I won't talk more about, about that either. Sometimes when I start talking about Baptists, I get out of control. And one time I was talking, and I was talking about Baptists, and I was kind of equating them to jerks because Baptists have a bad reputation. I understand that. And uh, I was talking, and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, John, you know, you were, you were talking about Baptists and made allusion to them being jerks. And I just want to say I was really offended by that. I thought, oh goodness, I'm not going to get invited back. I've offended somebody. I said, I'm sorry, sir. I, I'm so, I, I mean, I make fun of all denominations. I grew up in the church. I'm, I, some of my best friends are from all various denominations in the Christian faith. And I said, I, I didn't realize you're a Baptist, and I'm really sorry. He goes, no, no, I'm not a Baptist. He said, I'm a jerk. <laughs> I said, I take offense that you compared me to a Baptist. <laughs> there are many differences when it comes to flavors of Christianity, but also when it comes to flavors of how do people worship God? Many different expressions of that, but are, all they, are they all the same? We're going to address that as we talk about the question, do all religions lead to God? Many people in our culture today have the conception, or misconception, I would say, that religions, while fundamentally the same, basically all believing the same things, they have on the surface some superficial things, right? The Jewish kid brought a dreidel, the Muslim kid brought a prayer mat, the Catholic kid brought a rosary, and the Baptist brought a casserole, and they could have all, uh, we went down the list of all religions, brought something different. But at the heart of it, many people would say in our culture, they all kind of believe the same thing, right? Aren't they just taking different roads to get to the same destination? I mean, that's the tension of what we're going to address today. I would argue today that that is completely wrong, that while some religions may have superficial similarities, fundamentally they are all different. While many religions may have superficial similarities, they are all different. They are some things that are the same, right? Many religions, if you line up a, a panel of, of religious leaders, they would say, yeah, you know, we do have a lot of things in common. We believe that there is more to this world than simply just the material the things that you can see, the things that you can touch, the things that you can smell. There is more. There is a spiritual realm. Many religions would agree that's true. We agree with that. Uh, they are right in that. They would also say that morality is important, doing good things, giving to the poor, being devoted to your faith, making sacrifices for that faith. They would say, yeah, you know, we all agree on those kinds of things. They would also agree that something is wrong with the world, Think of the Eastern religions have this thing called dukkha, which means that everything is a broken and there's a struggle. That just being born, you're born into a world full of struggle. You will sweat and you will go through difficulty. They call that dukkha. We would say that that is sin, that something has uh, affected the way we do our world, that God's peace has been broken, and, and we call that sin as Christians. So we would agree that something is wrong with the world 
and that we would have in common with uh, major world religions. They would also say that there's consequences for bad behavior. Some would call it karma, some would call it judgment, some say reincarnation to a lesser, lower state, and some would call it hell. So there is a consequence for not uh, for being disobedient or for poor behavior, and many world religions would agree with that. They also say that there is food involved, right? Many religions celebrate food. There's great feasts, celebrations, and, and I hope you guys are a, a church that feasts, but, and by that you would have uh, that in common with, uh, with the Jews and with uh, Muslims as well, and Sikhs and Hindus and the such. So while we have those things that are the same, there are many things that we differ on. We differ on the nature of God, how many gods are there? A Hindu would say there's millions of gods, that anything can be God. A Jew would say, no, there is only one God. And then they would differ with Christians, which would say, yes, we have one God, but the God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's a fundamental difference. Judaism would say that Jesus was a good teacher. And a Muslim would say that Jesus may have been a good teacher and a prophet, but he certainly wasn't what the Christians say about him and that he was the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and God himself. So a Jew and a Muslim and a Christian would completely disagree on who Jesus was in his very nature and his claims. So this is the one statement that we're going to get into. The, the passage It's in John chapter 14, and I'm going to pray while you're turning there. If you do have a Bible, you can uh, follow along with me. I'll pray for us, and then we'll read just two verses this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, we've had a chance to gather and to, to be the church this morning, the church that is gathered to, uh, to lift high your name, to uh, talk about your lordship, your kingship over this world and over our lives. Lord, I would pray for anybody here that doesn't know you personally, that hasn't experienced you, that's maybe just still wrestling through this, this topic. I understand why they wrestle with it, and I understand uh, some of the struggles that are involved in trying to work through this idea of how can there be so many millions of people all around the world who believe such different things about you. But Lord Jesus, would you speak to them, and would you speak to all of us this morning? Would you uh, use your words to infuse life and courage and strength and boldness in your people this morning? Use me in any way that you want, and I ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. While your program may say that we are reading John 14, I want to back up just one more verse to give you the context of one of Jesus' most uh, popular, but also one of his most controversial statements that he makes in the entire New Testament. You'll remember Thomas was the disciple of Jesus who, upon hearing about the resurrection, was questioning him, you know, was questioning the disciples, questioning the people who heard about it, and he said, I won't believe in this unless I see evidence for it. That's a great question. He never gets condemned for it, he's actually encouraged. Jesus, he asks for uh, evidence, to, and he actually gets it. And Jesus says, look, look, consider the evidence. So if you kind of have a Thomas spirit, you're kind of skeptical, you kind of want to see evidence, you're welcome here, and you actually get a, a prominent place in our text this morning. If somebody, if you have the heart of a Thomas who wants to see evidence before you believe something, uh, Thomas wants to know a little bit more about Jesus and what he's doing and where he's taking them. Thomas is following Jesus, but he has questions, he has some doubts, and that's what we see in verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. We'll stop there. Here in the Christian understanding is that truth is not a philosophy, it's not an idea, it's not a set of principles, but Jesus says that truth is itself a person. It's a person. And so we're going to look at this morning an outline. I'm a Baptist preacher still, so I have to do things in three. Forgive me if that's too rigid for you, but we're going to look at the nature of truth. We're going to look at the test of truth and the triumph of truth, and all through this lens that Jesus himself claims to be the truth. So we'll look at the nature of truth, the test of truth, and the triumph of truth, and then how Jesus is the fulfillment of those, and therefore true. So let's look at the nature of truth. I didn't know it was a word, to be honest. I thought it was a philosophical concept, but in 2016, I found out that the Oxford English Dictionary has actually affirmed that the word of the year in 2016 was a hyphenated word, post-truth. Post-truth, meaning, I guess, by definition, after truth. This idea that there is no truth now and that we are, you know, we we used to have truth, but now we are post-truth, we are beyond truth, is a troubling statement. For one, if anybody ever tells you there is no truth, you have to realize they've just made a self-refuting, illogical statement. Saying there is no truth, you could say, uh, is is akin to saying all sentences that I know of are uh, less than three words. You're like, well, is that a sentence then? Because if that sentence, which you just said, is more than three words, then the statement you said uh, contradicts itself. It's self-refuting. Somebody talks about uh, all married people that I have ever met are bachelors. You think, well, are they married or are they a bachelor? Because it doesn't work. If you ever hear somebody talk about Microsoft Works, you know that this is also a self-refuting statement. If it's Microsoft, it usually doesn't work. If it works, it's probably not Microsoft. I've probably offended many of you today already. I have no problem with that. (laughs) So people that say that they are post-truth, this is quite troubling. In fact, I hope that they either stay in a coffee shop or in the philosophy classroom that they learn this from, because if you try to go into the regular world and try to apply these principles that there is no truth, you're in big trouble. These are the, probably the same people who don't believe that you should always drive on the, the right lane when in North America, right? Because you say, oh, you know, anybody can drive wherever they want. There is no truth. If they try to do mathematics and say, you know, I'm just going to uh, avoid the laws of mathematics, you think, what kind of a mathematician would you be? Imagine if your pharmacist who got a prescription from the doctor decided that he was beyond truth and that he could write any kind of prescription that he so felt led to that day. Imagine if the guy flying your plane today, Derwin, decides that he is post-truth and decides that he will fly it however and wherever uh, he wants. That's a scary world to think that we could actually be post-truth. Jesus made truth claims. Jesus uh, said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The nature of truth, I will argue in a moment, is is to make a claim that says this is the way it is, and anything that goes against it cannot exist at the same time. So either Jesus was telling the truth or he was lying. But if somebody is telling a different, something different, making a statement uh, different from him, they cannot both be right. That's the nature of truth. The nature of truth is that it is by nature exclusive. Derwin mentioned that I have a, a toddler 
at home. I love my dear daughter, Abigail, very much. Her name means Father's Joy, and she is a great joy to me. Having kids has been quite an adventure. It's been a very challenging. I think I have more gray hair now because of it, just by nature of not sleeping as much and having all my priorities really shifted. Parenting is tough enough, and now we're introducing this thing called potty training. And I looked at my wife, and I was scratching my head after cleaning up human fecal matter off of our living room floor at one point. And I was like, seriously, parenting is tough enough. How is this a thing as well? Like, not, not only do we have all of this sleep-deprived, trying to uh, keep up her schedule and, and all that goes along with parenting and all the costs, but now we have to teach them potty training? Like, another thing? Are you serious? How is this a thing? But it's part of being a parent. Part of par uh, parenting is teaching your kids certain things. I know what comes next is math, and my wife will be the math teacher. I mean, maybe it doesn't come next right after potty training, but it does come somewhere <laughs> along. We're going to have to teach her simple mathematics, which then me as the pastor, I will say my wife, who is the uh, mathematician, she has a degree in mathematics and science, she will be the math teacher. And at some point, it's going to get to complex situations like what happens when you have two things and you add two more things? What do you have? Do you have, you know, I mean, we could ask her, you know, Abigail, what is two plus two? And hopefully she'll answer something correctly, like four. But she might give all kinds of answers in the beginning, right? She might give, she might say uh, six or 18 or Tyrannosaurus Rex or the color orange or something like that. And by teaching her that 2 plus 2, no, does not equal 6 or 18 or Tyrannosaurus Rex or orange, are we teaching her to be intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded to suggest that 2 plus 2 always equals 4 to the exclusion of every possible answer that you could give to that question? Is it, is it bigoted, narrow-minded, intolerant to say that there is only one answer to 2 plus 2 equals 4? And that when you consider other answers that she gave, like orange and Tyrannosaurus Rex and 18 and 6, that some answers may be closer to the truth than others, they cannot all be correct. Why is that? Because truth is by nature exclusive. If you give the uh, coordinates to this church to somebody, say, hey, I hear great things about Hillside Church. I hear there's a great buzz going on. Here's where you need to go if you want to be a part of our church. This is where we gather on Sunday mornings. Could someone then say, oh no, I'd like to go to Hillside Church in, uh, in Langley. I'd like to go to Hillside Church in uh, you know, Vancouver Island or something. You'd say, no, no, you can't. If you want to get to this place, you cannot go to any place that you want. There's only one place. And by saying that there is an address for this church, you are therefore excluding every single other possible place, unless you guys go multi-site, in which case the analogy breaks down. You could. I mean, whatever. It's an option. The, let's try a different one. Let's say you want to contact somebody, and so they say, what's your phone number? And you give them the number that if you punch in those coordinates, you will get you every single time as long as you're paying your cell phone bills, and then the, the analogy breaks down there. But you say, let's just pick a number. My number is 604-734-8921, right? And then you say, okay, I'll take your word for it. But that seems a little narrow-minded to suggest that of, that is the only way that you can be reached. Is it intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded to suggest that these coordinates, these 10 numbers are the only way to get to a hold of you? No, we know that truth is by nature exclusive, that by telling somebody that this is your number, you are therefore excluding every single 
other number of which you can be reached to get to your phone, unless you have a family plan, in which case you could share it with your spouse or your kids, but then again, the analogy does break down. Jesus is saying that if you want to get to God, if you want to be his follower, if you want to be in relationship with the God of the universe, there is only one way, and that is uh, through him. And by doing so, we know that logic tells us that if he is saying that he is the only way, then at least in Jesus' mind, there is no other way. Because truth is by nature exclusive. Logic tells us that if various religions are telling us various things, and they're totally different, they cannot all be true. We know that because we know how addresses work, we know how mathematics work, and we know how phone numbers work. And so they can all be wrong, but they cannot all be right if they're saying the same thing. So the good news about Christianity is that we can actually test it to see if it is right or wrong. And if somebody's studying world religions, I would tell them, you know, go ahead, check out all the different claims of all the various religious leaders all throughout history. You could check out the old ones, you could check out the new ones. Check them all out. But if you want to save time, check out Christianity first because it's actually testable. And by being testable, it's also falsifiable. What does that mean? It can be disproven. Christianity puts itself on the hook unlike any other religion in that it roots, it, roots itself in his, history. It makes historical claims in the Bible. Let me just give you one example. The book of Acts. I mean, this is the historian's darling. They love Luke. They love Luke because he was educated. He knew how to write a research paper. He even says, I've done the research and now I'm going to show you what I've come up with. He gives us a research paper in the book of Luke and the follow-up to it, the book of Acts. Acts makes 84 historical facts that historians and scholars will look up and say, yeah, Luke got this right. These are actually real places with real people with phenomenon that we understand. Luke even talked about the direction that the wind blows in certain places of the Mediterranean at certain times of year. And you can go to the Mediterranean, go to those places at that time of year and see that the wind is indeed blowing in that direction. He was right when he talked about that. He could t- Luke talks about the depth of water in certain harbors. And we can go to those harbors, measure the water, and yeah, Luke knew what he was talking about. He could talk about historical characters by name and title. He talks about Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, Pontius Pilate, who we know famous from the Passion Stories we talk about Pilate often at Easter time. That was a real person that Luke talks about by name and title. And the ultimate test of Christianity, I'll use this carefully, rises and falls. You could also say falls and rises in a historical event that we have well documented. And that event we just celebrated at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible talks as if this was a real thing that happened. I mean, I don't have time to get into it all this morning, but it is a topic I love talking about. This is a great time in history to look at the the historicity, meaning the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus. I put put, there's so much in there. I've done so much work on this because I love it so much. I put a whole chapter in my book, Clear Minds and Dirty Feet, just on this backing up this truth that Jesus is indeed 
alive because there was eyewitnesses and uh, changed lives and uh, embarrassing facts that were thrown into the story seemingly for no reason unless it really happened. That if you're making up a story, you do not make up a story like it is told in the Gospels about the resurrection of Jesus. But the truth is, if this happened, if this happened, then, uh, you know, we would expect to see it uh, documented as we do. And so it's testable. If Jesus' body was found at any point, Christianity would completely falter. Paul says it in his talk about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, if, if Christ has not been raised, if Jesus you know, was dead and stayed dead and they could produce his body, then Christianity is completely false, a waste of time. Hillside Church, no offense, is a complete waste of time if Jesus was not resurrected, if Jesus is not alive. The Bible admits that, and I admit that. Two years ago, I got a chance to be in a public debate with an atheist uh, from Texas by the name of Matt Dillahunty. He did it all the time. I just went in uh, once and, and tried it. I thought it was interesting to do a public debate. I, I like to debate my wife on various things. She always wins. But uh, when it comes to philosophy and, uh, and these big questions, the question we were debating was, does science uh, point us towards God or away from God? I was the one arguing that science indeed points us towards belief in God. But at the end of the debate, after the discussion, somebody came up and said, you know, I'd like to ask a question to John. John, is there anything that would cause you to give up your Christian faith, that would cause you to abandon any, anything? And uh, I said, yeah, there is actually. And there was a quiet in the room, a room full of atheists from Alberta. It was, it was really a cool moment. Uh, you know, they, they talk about jaws dropping, and I, I never really noticed it. I've, I've, I've seen jaws dropping with people snoring when I've been talking, but never like attentively paying attention and then seeing this. My answer, I watched Jaws drop. I said, if Jesus' body could be found, I would give up my faith. If they could produce any kind of evidence against the, what I would believe is the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus, I would walk away from this completely. And Jaws dropped and people came up to me after, what do you mean by that? How would that be possible? They, they were stunned. But that's the truth. If Jesus is dead, then Christianity is a fraud. And we are all wasting our time. But I believe that Christianity is testable. It's testable. Let me tell you one story uh, of how you can know the difference between a, a testable story and, uh, and, and one that, that cannot be. I call it the chalk of ages. I don't know if you uh, were an emailer in the late 90s. Many of us were just kind of getting onto this idea of the internet and that we could send emails to each other. And even worse than that, we could forward emails to each other. And you know what's dangerous? Is a grandma with a forward button. <laughs> I don't know if you have grandmas like my grandma, but she would see anything, I guess, inspiring or if it out of a flower or countryside in the background with some uh, Comic Sans text over it, uh, she would just say, like, this must be gold and truth that I'm going to send to my sweet pastor grandson. Maybe he can help the young people with a story like this. And she would fall for all kinds of nonsense. But one thing that she thought was so inspiring because she knew that I was the guy that uh, answered tough questions and engaged with skeptics is she sent me this one that I had received many times, you know, the kind that says, if you don't forward this to 10 people, you're going to hell or something like that. 
The Chalk of Ages story was well known. It happens at the, in a USC, uh, California, a philosophy classroom, where this well-known atheist professor at the beginning of every school year would stand up and hold a piece of chalk, and he would drop it to the floor, and he said, before, uh, before I drop this piece of chalk, I want all the Christians to stand up. And so some of the uh, kids, you know, very intimidated, wouldn't stand up. But there was this one kid in particular, he's the hero of the story this, in this email. He stands up and he says, I'm a Christian. And I guess the, as the professor talked about what he was about to do, he prayed a prayer that said, God, if you are there, please uh, do not allow this chalk to break. Because the philosophy professor said, if God can keep this chalk from breaking, then he obviously exists. And if the chalk falls down and shatters, then uh, God doesn't exist. And I will spend the rest of this class proving to you of why God doesn't exist. It's like a bad version of God's Not Dead 3 or something like that. I haven't seen God's Not Dead 1 or 2, but uh, I figure it's like a, a policeman watching cops, right? You just probably can't really do it. But if you have, I mean, that's the kind of story, that storyline that we love to forward on and, and tell people, right? So I guess the guy drops the chalk and it hits his shoe and rolls along the floor into plain sight. And according to this email that my grandma sent me, the yeah, philosophy professor was so distraught that he ran out of the room uh, and, and headed off who knows where. But the, the one lone freshman kid who was standing up walked to the front of the classroom and then preached the gospel for half an hour uh, to the philosophy class. How many of you have read that? How many of you have passed that on in fear of losing your salvation? <laughs> Shame on you if you have. Because this was a story that was disproven. You say, how could you disprove a story like that? Well, there's just one little detail that puts the whole story on the hook for its truth. Do you know what that is? Three letters, actually. U-S-C. You got it. U-S-C. You see, what could happen is we could go through the philosophy department, uh, and, and actually we did with one guy named Dallas Willard, who's, who's gone to be with the Lord, but a very faithful Christian in the philosophy department at USC, and he was asked, you know, there's this email circulating about a philosophy professor dropping chalk every single year, and this one particular time that it didn't break, and this kid got to, to share stories of preaching the gospel. He said, you know, I, I know all my colleagues in the philosophy department very well, and that story, I could assure you, never happened, and it doesn't happen, and it's, and it's not true. All it took was one little detail slid into the story and the whole story fell apart because it put itself on the hook with the location. The Bible puts itself on the hook with locations and names and titles and events that we can actually back up using good history. And so it passes, I would argue, the test of truth, but we don't have enough time to get into it because really the, the linchpin of Christianity, the, what it really all hangs on to is point number three, the triumph of truth. The triumph of truth. Jesus is the center of Christianity. I mean, it's right there, Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. Christ was his title, right? Jesus the Christ, the, the Messiah, the promised one who has come. Christ is the center of the Christian, right? You take Christ out of Christian, and what are you left with? Ian. Right? And I know Ians, and, and they're not all that impressive. I wouldn't give my life... To, to follow them. You could take Buddha out of Buddhism and you could still be a, a, a practicing Buddhist. 
You could take Muhammad out of Islam and you could still be a devout Muslim. But you can't take Jesus out of Christianity. Like I said before, in Christianity, truth is not a philosophy, an idea, or a set of principles, but it's actually rooted in the person of Jesus. Truth originated in his mind, the Bible would say, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. That means the beginning and the end. He started everything, and he will bring all things to a completion, and he has this time in history where he actually comes and teaches us about truth, about what God's kingdom is like. He tells us all kinds of things about how we can get to God, or better, how God, what God has done to get to us, about how to live in a way that pleases God, how to honor Him with your life, with your relationships, with your finances. Jesus taught us all those things, and then He went to a cross, a, way that, a death that nobody expected. None of His followers expected it. Nobody expected it except Him. And it would seem like that was the end, that all the things that he had said, that this was a failed plan, that God had let this good teacher, this controversial figure, just die a criminal's death on the cross. God could have saved him, but it seemed like he didn't. And there's no surprise why all of Jesus' disciples, all his friends scatter, apart from a handful of women who were devoted to him and wanted to uh, wanted to take care of his body once he was dead. Seems like everybody had abandoned, like, just like all the other would-be messiahs that rose up and taught some interesting things, gained a following, but then was killed. It seemed like this Jesus rose up and then uh, died and, and never to see him again. But then three days later, everything completely changed. Jesus started to show up to people. There, there was public sightings. And these disciples went from uh, cowardly, uh, you know, going back to their old life of, of fishing to these brave, bold martyrs who publicly confessed that they had seen Jesus alive. They gave their life for it. They lost everything because of it. I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus is the very signet ring from the stamp of God the Father saying, this guy is right. This guy knew what he was talking about. If Jesus was just another blasphemer who claimed to be God and acted like God and talked about God, then he should have stayed dead, rotting in the grave like anyone else who claims to be God. Why did God raise up this man? I would say because he wanted to validate everything that he said. That when this man says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he's either committing atrocious blasphemy or he's telling the truth. And the resurrection of Jesus tells me that this man is approved by the miracle-working God who created the universe. Everything this man said is right because he is God himself come to us. If Jesus was lying, he should have rotten in the grave if he was telling the truth. And this is the centerpiece of history, that God has told us how to get to him and therefore, what we know about logic, what we've learned so far, is that if he is telling us one way and someone else is telling us a different way, then they cannot both be true. They can both be wrong, but the resurrection tells me that one of them was telling the truth. And that is the one who not only claimed to tell the truth, but claimed to be the truth. Notice the resurrection of Jesus is, is the centerpiece of the teaching in Acts. 
You get the sense from what's coming out of these guys' mouth. It's not, hey, be a good person, or hey, give your money to the church, or here's how to have your relationships. It's this man who was publicly killed has been uh, resurrected, and we are witnesses. I mean, that's the centerpiece of the teaching of the early church is the resurrection of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus, the triumph of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We've looked at the nature of truth, the test of truth, and the triumph of truth. My question for you is, do you know this truth? Is your life living in consistency with this truth? Our world wants to talk about silliness of post-truth. I hope you don't drive like that. I hope you don't prescribe your pharmaceuticals like that. I hope you follow the the laws uh, as opposed to that. I hope you don't do your philosophy like that. I hope you don't do your logic like that. And I hope you know this Jesus who claims to be the truth. Let me finish a story with a, a common one that is told in connection with this do all religions lead to God question. You may have heard the popular, I mean, it's a very popular story in Canada, the parable of the man and the, 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 the four men and the elephant, right? Uh, there's this elephant in the room, as there is most times when people get together. <laughs> and these guys are trying to figure out uh, what, what, are we, what, what are we looking at here? But the problem is they're blind. They're not looking at anything, so they're, they're, they can only touch and so they step up to this thing, and the one guy's got his hand on a leg, and he's like, I, I think what's in the room is this, this tree trunk. Right? It's big. It's, it's kind of coarse on the outside. I think we're, we're, we're talking about a tree trunk here, everybody. And the guy says, no, it's, what I've got is nothing like that. It's kind of stringy and floppy around. He's got, he's got a tail. The other guy at, uh, is, is saying, no, I, I feel something sharp, and, and it's, it's solid, and it's, it's moving around a bit. He's got, of course the tusks of the elephant. And, and they're trying to figure out, well, well, who's right? And of course, the parable goes that, well, these are all blind men, and they're all uh, trying to f- feel their way around knowing the truth. And they'll say, you know, there's, that's what religions are like. We have the Jewish leader, and he's trying to tell us a little something about God, and we have the Hindu, and they're trying to tell us a bit something about God, and we're, we have the, the Muslim and the Christian, and they're all telling us something different about God. And maybe that's what it's like. We're all just blind, trying to figure it out. And those are what the three people in the story are talking about. But notice I told you that it was actually the story of the four people and the elephant. There's a fourth character in the story, and if you, if you ask me, it, it's, he's the most arrogant. Because the fourth person in the story is the one telling the story. And the one telling the story is claiming that all people in the story are blind except me, that I will tell the religious people of what they're really feeling, of what they're really going through. I will be the one to change all of their beliefs, their fundamental beliefs, and tell them what is actually going on. To me, that's the height of arrogance to suggest that all major religions are just blind people randomly feeling their way around truth, and I'm the one who sees everything. Maybe that's what you like or you're like, or maybe your friend has, has, uh, has come to that, or that, that way of thinking. I'm telling you that if those three people are blind, the chances are that you are also blind as well. And it is arrogant to say that everyone else is blind except me. I'm the only one that sees the way things are. So if you're willing to admit that you're blind, then you too 
are trying to figure out truth as well. And if you're like Thomas saying, I don't know the way, I need to know the way, well, the answer to his question is this. And I say this carefully. The elephant can talk. The elephant can talk. I mean, imagine if the elephant in the story could turn around and look at these guys who are blindly groping him and say, gentlemen, this is making me uncomfortable. Let me tell you the truth. I'm an elephant. I have a tail. I have a leg. I have these tusks. But you're not seeing the big picture. There is a way. There is a truth. There is a life. And it is me. And I can make your blind eyes see again. The problem is in the story that that really does or that, that, that should happen. But in real life, it did happen. The elephant came in the person of Jesus and he talked and he taught us about what God is like. And we didn't like it. And we killed him. We killed him and said, no, how dare you say you are the only way? And my wonder is, if God had given us 10 ways to get to God, do you think we would have asked for 11 and been mad at him? If he had given us 11, would we have demanded 12? If he had given us 12, would we have asked for 13 and killed him anyways for being so narrow-minded? To me, the question really comes down to not why has God not allowed many ways to God, but why is he not why has he allowed any way to him? What right do we have to get to God when we have done nothing but spit in his face, use all of his resources, and sin against him willfully in our thoughts and our words and our deeds? Why has God provided any way? The beauty of Christianity is not what we have to do to get to God, but what God did to get to us. He sent his son to die on the cross that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's good news for the Christian. But Jesus is also good news for the Buddhist, and he's good news for the Muslim, and he is good news for the Sikh, and he is good news for the Jew. He is good news for the world because anyone who wants to believe in him can forsake all other gods and follow him. Jesus is the good news for all world religions. Is he good news for you? And he's a good news for your neighbor, and he's a good news for your friends that do not know him. And are you telling him, telling them about that good news? I mean, that's been the heart of the missionary movement is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. People have given everything for that all throughout history and they're doing it now and we need to do it today even in the Tri-Cities. So God bless you as you go out. If you have questions, you can come talk to me. Uh, if you want, want to stick around and, and pray a little bit more, we're going to sing a song and worshiping Jesus that it is in Christ alone that we have uh, our hope in, in, in Him. Maybe I'll come up after and just close off Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's become clear to me in, in thinking about this that we've, we've got it all wrong. It's not wondering why you don't allow many paths. It's, it's, it's about being marveled that you provided even one. We deserve no pardon for our rebellion against you. We've shaken our fists at you. We've ignored you. And yet you have still been willing to give us grace and mercy. You've continued to show love and draw us towards yourself. And so may we just be caught up in the marvel that one, we have truth, but two, that we have grace and love. And may those two be married together in the heart of every follower of you, Jesus, and everyone that wants to become a follower. And may we go out and live out that message as the early church did, being willing to sell everything and give everything, even our very lives, because you are triumphant. 
So light a fire, Lord, in our hearts and our minds, and may you get all the glory in, in the messages that are shared from this point on. May we celebrate you, Lord Jesus, in Christ alone. Amen.